Welcome to Curious Objects, brought to you by the magazine Antiques. I'm Ben Miller. And normally on this podcast, we approach the history of decorative arts object by object. Uh, But sometimes it's important to take a step back and look at how one object or artisan or style or movement uh, leads into the next. And my guest today has taken yet another step back to look at the whole broad sweep of American craft in a newly published book called Craft and American History. His name is Glenn Adamson, and you might remember him from an episode on this program about the California woodworker Art Carpenter and his so-called wishbone chair. Um, Glenn is also editor-at-large of the magazine Antiques, and you can find his articles there regularly. And Glenn's new book from Bloomsbury Publishing is perhaps the first serious effort to conduct a a survey of some 500 years of of craft in this country. Um, It's a very fun read. Uh, But at the same time, it's a thoroughly researched book, not just about craft itself, but about the historical forces uh, swirling around it. Now, it isn't, of course, a catalog of every single craftsperson or every aesthetic school. Um, And I think to Glenn's credit, he's resisted the urge to impose some sort of clean and and simple overarching narrative. Um, But it is a stitching together of hundreds of stories that contribute toward an understanding of where craft has been and how it got to where it is now Uh, and where it might be going. Uh, Glenn, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me back, Ben. And uh, just for the record, I am still sitting in my Art Carpenter wishbone chair. I'm really happy to hear that. Now, um, there are a lot of questions that I'd like to ask about the book, but um, I thought we might start by just giving listeners a taste of the kinds of stories that you're telling in Craft and American History. Um, and, and one of these recurring themes throughout the book is stories from groups like women, uh, African-Americans, Native Americans, and others that um, we now know are, are absolutely central to the arc of American craft history, but they've often been overlooked or distorted in, in the ways that this history has been told. Um, and Glenn, you, you suggested that we might start really right in the middle of American history um, around the Civil War with the, the story of a woman whose paths crossed with so many um, political figures at that time. So, um, so tell me, who was Elizabeth Keckley? Right. Yeah, I think it's a good place to start because it shows you how much of craft history is yet to be written. And I'm certainly not the first person to um, try to construct the narrative of Elizabeth Keckley. In fact, she began herself because she published an autobiography after the Civil War. And she has been celebrated, particularly in recent years, but not so much as a craftsperson. And I find her story so fascinating. She was born into slavery and, you know, experienced some of the horrific things that young enslaved African-Americans did, uh, various forms of really terrible abuse when she was growing up. But she also managed to acquire the skills of dressmaking and became very, very proficient, not only as a seamstress, but also as a designer. And she was so in demand that she was able to eventually buy her own freedom uh, with the income that she had been allowed to make through that dressmaking outside of the family where she was, quote, owned. And eventually she leveraged those relationships to um, get herself first to Washington, D.C., and then actually to become a dressmaker to some of the key families operating in Washington's power elite at that time. And this sounds hard to believe, but she actually made dresses for the wives of Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis, while also being an intimate associate of 
Mary Todd Lincoln, President Lincoln's wife, of course, during the Civil War years, she actually lived in the White House and was very close with the Lincolns. And that was the basis of her autobiography. So it just shows you how far uh, an American craftsperson could get through their skill alone, really starting from very, very unpromising circumstances, totally on the wrong side of history, you might say, and relying on her own craft to get her out of that situation and into a much better one. I mean, that is really a, a hell of a by your bootstraps kind of a story. It is. Um, it is. And, you know, th- that's a great phrase, um, you know, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, be- precisely because it's obviously impossible, <laughs> as anybody who knows a little bit of physics can tell you. And, you know, one of the things that I'm interested in talking about in the book is the way that craft is allied to these narratives of self-help and upward mobility that, unfortunately, in most cases are actually illusory or misleading. And so we have to remember that the story of someone like Elizabeth Keckley is extremely atypical for its period and certainly for the black experience of the 19th century because most African-Americans who were enslaved and then after the Civil War as well were not able to acquire craft skills. And even those who were, were often forced to work for you know far under market wages or no wages at all if they were enslaved and in terrible circumstances. So I'm always trying to reflect in the book on some of the darker sides of craft history as well as its more inspiring aspects. Do we know from Keckley's memoir uh, how she felt about um, doing work for these representatives of the southern states and and ultimately the Confederacy? Um, You know, I think the word that springs to mind is proud. I think she, like a lot of craftspeople, really anchored her own narrative in her work. So... From her point of view, she was making the best things that she could, and that obviously was completely bound up with her own journey to uh, security. Um, but it, it was also, you know, literally kind of professionalism, and that's another thing that runs right through the book. That whether it is African Americans, women, she was obviously both, or Native Americans, immigrants who also faced a really uphill climb in the American economy, that idea of professionalism and a kind of, um, you know, tradesperson's um, sense of self really comes through in a lot of the stories in the book. Yeah. I mean, it it um, really sort of pulls a lot of different threads together. Um, and, and Keckley, I think, is one of the reasons she is such a, uh, an interesting figure now is that her legacy survives. I mean, both in the form of this memoir um, but also in the, the products of her work. That's right. The, the uh, dresses do survive, some of them. Uh, there's a quilt in a collection that I talk about in the book, and there's also um, a dress that she made for Mary Todd Lincoln that's in the collection of the Smithsonian, so we can still see it today and attest to the quality of, of her handiwork, which is obviously what patrons of her own time saw in it. Um, it should also be mentioned that she's been you know, the subject of I guess what you could call quasi-fictional narratives, including a stage performance and literature. So she does live on in that kind of symbolic sense as well. I guess that's maybe another important aspect of the book is that I'm often drawn to figures who have a highly symbolic role in American history and also the Mm. symbolic role of craftspeople in general. So it's not just the literal workaday history, but it's also the way that craft functions in the American imaginary. I imagine we'll see the the Netflix special before too long. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. No <laughs> doubt. God, who would play Elizabeth Keckley on screen? That's a really good question. Angela Bassett. Mm. 
Okay. <laughs> that's a that's some fun speculation. I'd like to be the casting director for that film. Um, but yeah, so I mean, of course, you know, we we dived into to um, the middle of the nineteenth century, but the the history of American craft starts not only long before that, but but long before the arrival of of Europeans or Africans. Um, and uh, you know, I think it's uncontroversial at this point to say that much of what's been said or, or understood about Native American craft has been oversimplified and reduced and outright fabricated or or just plain forgotten. Um, and the book incorporates many stories around native craftspeople um, starting before European settlement and, and continuing up uh, through the present. Um, so, Glenn, what would you say, I mean, what are some of the misconceptions that you came across um, when you were writing these particular stories? Yeah, you know, it's this is an aspect of craft history that, again, is mostly tragic. So it needs to be emphasized that this is all happening during um, a genocide, essentially, displ- mass displacement and genocide. And so whatever we can say about the craft production of Native Americans has to really be conditioned by that fact. And of course, the way that it's being seen is through that lens. So either through the kind of apologetic or frankly just dismissive attitude that white Americans took to uh, Native craftspeople, or conversely, Native craftspeople often using their artisanry to reflect on what's happening to them historically. Um, And then maybe there's also another even more subtle part of the story, which is that a lot of Native Americans, particularly towards the end of the 19th century and then into the 20th century, adaptively invent or reinvent traditions as a way of simply economically surviving in a highly uh, adverse set of circumstances where they've been displaced to plantation, uh, sorry, to reservations, uh, where they've been displaced to reservations or otherwise marginalized. Um, so you have a situation where traditions, even very, very famous ones like the black on black ceramics that Maria and Julian Martinez made in the early 20th century, those turn out to actually be really um, clever ways of meeting a white clientele halfway. And when you look at mm. them in that from that point of view, they even start to seem kind of modernist or art deco in their appearance, despite the fact that they're also, at least to some extent, based on archaeological fragments that the Martinez's are finding, along with archaeologists that they're right. allied to. So you have you have um, you know a constant drumbeat in the historical record as to the authenticity of Native American craft objects, often cloaked in a narrative of disappearance, kind of inevitable. Um, you know, fading away into the mists of time kind of thing. But in fact, what's really going on is that native craftspeople are being highly inventive and uh, sensitive to the uh, tenor of their times and the opportunities that they do have. Yeah, you know, there was one uh, anecdote in in the book that really sort of caught me by surprise, um, talking about uh, Navajo jewelry, which, you know, is is such a sort of familiar uh, genre uh, at this point that I had, uh, I think, just uh, more or less taken for granted that uh, when you look at a piece of Navajo jewelry, you must be looking at a more or less traditional uh, form of craftsmanship. But, you know, in fact, uh, as you point out in the book, um, what we know today as Navajo jewelry is is a, a neologism. Um, I mean, it's uh, the, the, the product of 19th and 20th century invention. 
That's right, and very much uh, another example of reaction to a local market. There's a wonderful picture which I reproduce in the book by, uh, or sorry, a wonderful picture that I reproduce in the book of a um, silversmith and jeweler called Slender Maker of Silver. That's how his name has come down to us. And at first it presents itself to you as, you know, an image of authenticity. So you have this craftsperson surrounded by his wares in what seems to be a desert landscape. And then you look at it a little more closely and you realize that actually he's essentially in a photographic setup of the period with a fake backdrop, props all around him, and that, in fact, it was probably taken at a U.S. Army base where much wow. of this jewelry was sold. So it's a really good example of the um, difference between appearances and reality that you get in that kind of a situation. Yeah. Gosh. And, well, I mean, to bring us um, sort of back into the uh, white European tradition. Um, I realize we're moving along quickly here, but there's, uh, of course, a lot of ground to cover uh, in the history of American craft. Um, but you know, one of the major movements or, or, or periods in this history that we're talking about is is um, largely defined by the thinking of a fellow who is not an American at all, but a Brit, um, namely William Morris. Um, and you know, listeners are likely familiar with Morris and, and some of the parts of his legacy, especially in relation to the arts and crafts movement. Uh, but I was surprised to learn reading your book uh, about some of the, uh, I guess you could say, stranger influences that he exerted. Um, so let's talk about that for a moment. You know, you, you write about uh, Morris in the context of utopian thinking. Um, wh- where do you start to see Morris having an effect on, on American craft traditions? Right. And by the way, this is right at the same time as the uh, phenomena that we were just talking about to do with native craft. And one of the distinctive features of the American arts and crafts movement is that it does appropriate native crafts, particularly textiles, baskets, pottery. So these stories do intertwine as so often um, throughout the overarching narrative that I tried to tell. I think the main issue with Morris, frankly, is that he was a socialist. (laughs) You know, it's hard to look past that uh, blunt fact and understand the reception of his thinking and his own work in America in light of that fact, because obviously socialism was a very, very marginal political position in America mm-hmm. in the 1890s, 1900s, into the teens and 20s, when um, the arts and crafts movement was at its height. So the trick that Americans needed to somehow pull off was to accept Morris's aesthetic prescriptions without accepting the political doctrines that it was meant to accompany. And what would that really have meant? I mean, what, what did it mean to be a, a, an American socialist in 1890? Well, right. So to be an American socialist was probably to have nothing to do with the arts and crafts movement and instead to be involved in the labor movement. In other words, uh, left-wing unions, the international workers of the world, or so-called wobblies, would have been the leading one at that time. And it's very, very striking uh, when you look at it from a kind of present-day perspective that neither the arts and crafts movement nor the succeeding studio craft movement, which is in the post-war period, had any real connections uh, to the labor movements of their own time. So you don't have really much in the way of exchange and certainly nothing in terms of outright alliance between arts and crafts ideologues and promoters and artists and the labor radicals and activists that are trying to change the nature of the American workplace at the same time. And that's very, very, as I say, striking and tells you a lot about the overall shape of American craft history and how 
compartmentalized it is and how kind of fragmentary it is in terms of its politics. Um, right. Well, so and so if if the underpinnings of William Morris's aesthetic philosophy, uh, if the political underpinnings were socialist, then what were the political underpinnings of the um, prominent members of the arts and crafts movement? So they would probably best be described as apolitical, unless you think that the very notion of surrounding yourselves with better things is political in itself. And obviously that's a subject that I have a lot of sympathy to because my last book was called Fewer Better Things, which is almost like a motto of the arts and crafts movement. Yeah, There's an idea there that simply by knowing more about our physical surroundings and making things in a more holistic, informed, materially sensitive way, that that will itself provide some kind of uplifting or progressive um, effect in society generally. But as I say, that's a pretty soft form of politics, almost edging into apoliticism and into pure aestheticism, uh, particularly at that time, because it wasn't associated with the kinds of considerations about, let's say, um, workers' rights, sustainability, uh, control of the global commercial commodity chains. That's the kind of thing that I I try, have tried to connect to the idea of, quote, fewer, better things. But at this time, at the turn of the 20th century, you're really talking about a pure stylistic um, idea that's connected to a rather romantic ideal of what the craftsperson will be, and probably not somebody who is going to be understood as working class in any particular way. Mm-hmm. Neither the, the craftsperson nor presumably the customer. Especially not the customer, <laughs> because obviously these are luxury objects that are being produced. Um, you know, having said that, there there are some exceptions to that rule. So, for example, Jane Addams' work at Hull House would be one uh, example where you do see a crossover. So she's very involved with the arts and crafts movement. Her partner, Ellen Gates Starr, is even more involved and is a you know arts and crafts bookmaker, bookbinder. Um, and she, uh, Adams and Starr work very assiduously to, um, you know, try to advantage the immigrant populations there in Chicago as part of the American reception of the settlement house movement in the, in the UK. And that has a more general take up also in America at this time. So there are definitely points of contact there, but they are probably better described as the exception than the rule. Yeah. Well, and and you also um, draw some connections between Morris's influence and groups that um, uh, I guess you would describe as as communes. Mm. Um, this is sort of an interesting chapter that uh, that I was quite unfamiliar with. Yeah, you, this here we're not talking about the communes of the late '60s, although there are certain uh, connections. But we're rather talking about religious communities in the late 19th century and even earlier. The the most famous one, of course, would be the Shakers. But I was particularly interested in the story of Amana, which is, um, uh, you know, another of these religious religious separatist communities that was thriving right at the time of the arts and crafts movement. And to be honest, before I had started researching the book, the only thing I knew about Amana was that they made my oven <laughs> in my apartment in Brooklyn. <laughs> and it, indeed, that community did eventually sort of transform in the 1930s into being an appliance manufacturer, ironically, a private company. But at the turn of the century, they were a religiously motivated communist um, sect out there in the Midwest. And that it turns out to be very, very commonplace, actually, in 19th century American history, that you have a strong linkage between 
craft production and religious fervor. And again, the Shakers are the most famous example of this, and a lot of people know that, but they're hardly alone. I was really um, surprised to read about the Onita Flatware Company, which, um, you know, as, as a silver dealer, I come across their the products of their work all the time, but um, I didn't realize that there was actually a bit of a uh, colorful history there. That's right. So it's another example of a 19th century religious uh, movement, the perfectionists in this case, that, uh, and I love that name, you know, what, what better description <laughs> for a craft intensive <laughs> separatist community could you have than perfectionists? But they, they become uh, eventually again, a commercial enterprise once their uh, religious steam runs out you could say um and they have to rethink themselves as a community and find another way of of moving forward in the 20th century well speaking of the 20th century um i I haven't measured this by page count but i I would guess that uh probably about half of your book um is concerned with the 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 20th and 21st centuries um and and that's moving into territory that i'm even less familiar with but um but you tell quite an interesting set of stories around the the formation and, and the early years of the Museum of Modern Art. Um, and, and there's one craftsman in particular who plays an outsized role here in defining what seems like a, a whole new field of interest. Um, and that's Patrocinio Barella. Um, so I'd love it if you could tell me a little about uh, Barella and, and how he relates to the, the Museum of Modern Art. Sure. So now we're in the 1930s. So we're in the period of the New Deal. And um, I suppose what we have to imagine here is an early formative period at the Museum of Modern Art where modernism is only one of the things that's on the menu. And this is, again, a really surprising thing, I think, for most people. When you look at what they were doing in the 1930s, it included not just Kandinsky and Mondrian, uh, but in fact, a lot of what we would probably call folk art or historic um decorative arts and design in various ways, as well, of, cor- of course, as the famous machine art uh, and international style architecture tendencies. So that's all kind of mixed together in their exhibition program. And there's a fellow called Holger Cahill, who was very involved earlier in the Newark Museum, who is also part of the kind of New Deal governmental apparatus at that time. And particularly during his brief period at MoMA, they're looking for exemplars of a kind of modernism before modernism, you might say. Mm. So a kind of indigenous, authentic vernacular that Americans could lay hold of. I can hear your air quotes from here. Yeah, exactly. So that's where Barella comes into the story. So he's a a Latino woodcarver and really roused about, you could say. He's sort of an itinerant ranch hand and laborer who's bouncing across the Southwest in the 1920s and 1930s and intensely religious, so, you know, Catholic. And he's making what would be called santos in the Spanish language tradition, so carvings of saints, and doing it in a way that, I guess, you know, we would have a tendency to call this sort of thing outsider art or self-taught or visionary art. Um, Mm. But the important thing is not what you call it, but sort of how it came across at that time, which was as extremely direct and deeply felt. And as I say, as a kind of, uh, you know, an indigenous genius, a touch of genius that could then be adopted or at least appreciated by the modern eye. And so that's how it comes into MoMA's purview. And that's the kind of... Now, is that a sort of a noble savage idea or, or how would you describe that attitude? Yeah, probably not too dis- different from that. The noble savage is, of course, um, the, you know that that phrase is usually used in 
uh, the context of Europeans looking at Native American culture, but there's certainly a lot of continuity with that earlier tradition, and you might think of it in the context of early 20th century primitivism. So an obvious comparison mm. here might be the way that Picasso looked at African masks, say. So it's a kind of unconscious artistic excellence, perhaps. And of course, the unconsciousness is part of what makes it so appealing, because it, it seems right. to have a kind of natural or um, essential quality to observers at that time. And of course, the actual circumstances of what it was to be an itinerant ranch hand in the Southwest in the 1930s during the Depression, that gets completely swept aside during this period and in this kind of moment of um, adoption. And so again, you have right. a, a divergence between reality and appearances. Um, but boy, if for somebody who nobody in the 21st century has ever heard of, Patrocino Barella turns out to have had an incredibly um, important presence in the kind of mental landscape of uh, art historians and art critics and artists in the 1930s. It's fascinating. Yeah. Interesting, too, that, I mean, we're talking about the period that's also you know the birth of anthropology as a as a discipline and you know margaret mead is starting to write and so you know this is maybe also part of the story of of uh, sort of a broader um political and academic story about um you know changing ideologies and changing viewpoints around uh uh, you know, cultural relativism and such. Yeah, and you have to give the anthropologists a lot of credit there, I think. You know, unlike the art historians, among whom I would number myself, really, by training at least, the anthropologists, and Margaret Mead is a fantastic example of this, were able to arrive at a more self-conscious and objective uh, set of notions about craft production beginning in the 1950s that really allowed them to start looking at white populations with the same kind of analytic that had been subjected to other populations. And a great example of that would be Mead's discussion of post-war amateurism, you know, suburban mm. amateurism, hot rodding and dressmaking and house building and so on, that Mead, um, I think in a really sophisticated and sensitive way, uh, talks about as an expression of the particular American psyche post-war. So it's, this, it's the kind of uh, analysis that might have been subjected to a Native American community uh, 50 years earlier or 100 years earlier, right. but not to white people themselves. And Mead is a real pioneer in that sense. So, the, you know, there's one more story I want to slip in here. And, um, you know, as we move through the 20th century, and it's not about a specific craftsperson so much as a transformation in thinking. Um, and namely, uh, I mean, the, the studio craft movement. Uh, and here we're talking about a, a period in the, the mid 20th century when craft is beginning to sneak its way into the broader genre of fine art. Um, that, that, that's a distinction you know, we could uh, spill a lot of ink over. But um, it's interesting because you know, by this point, craft uh, has already lived multiple lives in American history, um, as you tell in the book, you know, from, from frontier necessity to, to luxury good production. Uh, and this studio craft phenomenon represents maybe a bit of a subtler change, um, but its effects really are ubiquitous. And in a way, I think, you know, it even defines my profession as an antiques dealer. Um, so, so talk to me about the emergence of this idea of studio craft. Yeah. So this is a big complicated story, which I guess is why the 20th century gets so much space in the book in some ways. Although yeah. I also was at pains to decenter the arts and crafts movement and studio craft movements from the narrative so that it didn't feel like 
that was the real story and everything else was mm-hmm. a kind of mm-hmm. background or context. And in fact, if you think about it for a second, the arts and crafts movement and the studio craft movement, despite their importance, are actually pretty niche or marginal phenomena compared to, let's say, uh, craft-based production in factories compared to, as I mentioned earlier, the labor movement. So yeah. you have to think of them as kind of boutique movements and, again, as probably more symbolic than practical in terms of their effect on American society. Having said that, um, the studio craft movement is deeply fascinating and has you know, generated some of the most arresting personalities of the whole story of American craft. And you have to really start there with Eileen Osborne Vanderbilt Webb, who was the founder really of the studio craft movement in the sense that she founded what's now called the American Craft Council and what's now called the Museum of Arts and Design also founded a magazine and a store and a world crafts council and a school, you know, so she was busy, 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 had deep resources. You can tell from her last names. It was very well to do and connected to the New York elite, including the leadership at MoMA, um, which accounts for the reason that the, her, her founding of the museum of contemporary crafts as it was then was actually next door to MoMA on 53rd street Mm -hmm. in Manhattan. Um, and was almost, I think, in some ways thought of as an adjunct, like a craft-specific adjunct to what was happening next door. So she was able to generate a huge amount of energy and bring people together in conferences and create all these other platforms, as I said, to join together the craft movement as a self-conscious um, constituency for the first time. And so that makes a big, big difference. And again, it's limited in a lot of ways in terms of its political intentions, in terms of its demographics. But what eventually happens in the 1960s, late 1950s into the 1960s, is that you start to have figures like Lenore Tawney in fiber, Peter Volkus in ceramics, um, who start to present their work as fine art and have a very vigorous and meaningful dialogue with contemporaneous painting and sculpture. And that creates a whole new direction and a whole new um, set of energies that courses through the craft movement really down to the present day. Yeah, well, and it even inflects the way that we think about historical craft, um, you know, as I'm keenly aware in, in my daily work where I'm selling, you know, very expensive pieces of antique silver that, uh, of course, they were created as luxury goods, and we sell them sometimes in the context of luxury goods, but sometimes in the context of, of I guess I would just say art, um, to the extent that you can uh, draw a distinction there. Um, but I think that you know we we've come to a point where there's really a very deep seated temptation to look at um, even older craft created in in a very different context and to to think of it in uh, artistic terms that it's producers probably would would never have really given any thought to yeah i think um again this is where you start getting into the ink spilling part of the (laughs) conversation (laughs) but uh, just very simply uh the way that i have always found most useful to think through these issues is that instead of thinking of craft as a category of thing as you might understand artworks to be uh, or buildings let's say I tend to think of craft more as a human capability that's applied to lots of different purposes. And so that uh, helps to account for the fact that many craftspeople, particularly historically, were, and to some extent still are, kind of indifferent to what you call their work. What they're interested in, as I said earlier, with regard to Elizabeth Keckley, is, is it well made? And does it represent the best of me as a maker? 
And so then the question as to what you actually call the thing or how you categorize it, what department you put it into in a museum or a magazine, that starts to become maybe less interesting. And what's more important is what's the, what is the definition of quality and norms of um, uh, style and technique that inform that object. And that could be just as important to uh, a handmade car as a sculpture made of ceramic um, or a building. And in fact, one of the things I was really interested in when writing about the 1950s was that one of the key hot rod makers in Los Angeles in the late 1950s, uh, George Barris, was working just a couple of miles away from Peter Volkus, who is universally acclaimed as the most influential ceramic artist at that time. And both of them were basically saying the same thing about their work and having it said about their work that they were taking a functional thing and turning it into a sculptural thing, you know, a car or a pot. Um, but they seem to have had no actual direct connection to one another. It's another of these interesting almost convergences that's actually a divergence. That's fascinating. Well, I, I do appreciate the uh, clarity and brevity of of uh, that definition and conversation. And, and actually, it's one of the things I really enjoy about the book, that you sort of dismiss the, the meta conversation about uh, art versus craft very quickly, uh, very early on. And don't need to concern yourself much with it uh, beyond that point. So it's a, a bit of a relief for the reader. Yeah, I'm, I'm really trying to focus on the things that craftspeople cared about, and that doesn't tend to rank very highly among those concerns. <laughs> yeah. So um, just shifting gears here a bit, um, I, I do want to ask you another sort of uh, meta question, if I can, which, um, which has to do with the way that uh, we think about the history of craft um, I should say, outside of the context of your book. Um, and, and, and I mentioned that, you know, a, a large portion of, of the book uh, concerns itself with, with uh, 20th century history. And yet, you know, I, I would guess it's fair to say, I, I think listeners would largely agree with me that um, in the popular imagination, American craft uh, is really very closely identified with Revolutionary War era uh, craftsmen. Um, and, you know, Paul Revere, of course, appears uh, on the cover of your book and in the famous Copley portrait uh, holding a silver teapot. Um, and I just wonder if you have any thoughts about historiologically how, how that came to be. Um, you know, how, how did we as a nation come to think of American craft in, uh, in this sort of very specific narrow historical context, or, or maybe you'll disagree with my premise. No, I think you're right, Ben. Um, you know, the short answer probably would be the colonial revival in the 1920s, where you have people like Revere suddenly taken up as the exemplars of early American culture. And that, of course, is a very politically charged, rather conservative um, move that's being made there. The other figure, of course, is Betsy Ross, who I also talk about in, in the book, who did not as far as we can make out, actually design or make the first U.S. flag. Sorry, <laughs> the sort of like you know, um, disappointing uh, research finding. But it, she did run a uh, her own upholstery shop for years and years after inheriting or taking over her her shop when her husband died. So as a you know female entrepreneur, she deserves a lot of credit. And that's as I say in the book, that's probably a lot more impressive than designing a flag. So I would still like to celebrate her for that. But anyway, the 20th century and even, you know, beginning with the 1876 centennial, which is when the myth of Betsy Ross starts being put about, 
by her descendants, that's when you start to get this very fixed idea about American craft of the colonial and revolutionary period as this sort of, um, you know, set of relics on which uh, American identity is going to be founded. And that does, again, come right down to the present, and that's bound up in the operations of our museums and even a magazine like the magazine Antiques, I think takes a very justly critical and sophisticated attitude to that lineage, but it's also part of that lineage. You know, when, when the magazine was founded a century ago, it was absolutely part of that colonial revival energy. Yeah. So um, it, it is... And you write about uh, Colonial Williamsburg. Colonial Williamsburg, another great example. Um, Winterthur, um, the Henry Ford Museum in uh, Michigan, all of these things founded around the same time by very, very wealthy captains of industry, arch capitalists who seem to be creating these kind of artisanal fairylands as a way of almost compensating for what they're doing um, as actual actors in the actual economy. So it's very, very interesting, that whole that whole patch of um, retrospective construction of American craft history. But I think it's it's powerful. You know, it's, it's a very forceful, effective... Uh, symbolic language that's created there and is sort of ascribed to these historic objects, furniture, silver, um, to a lesser extent, ceramics, certainly architecture. So um, I think it'll be with us for a long time to come. Um, And I guess in the book, what I'm trying to do is give due credit to that generation of artisans of the 18th century, but also suggest that they have a lot in common with people who succeeded them and that there is a continuous story and that craft is kind of always equally relevant, almost by definition, Um, whether it's oppositional or whether it's fundamental to the economy, uh, whatever the situation is, there's there's bound to be something interesting to say about craft in any particular time and place in American history. And that's really what I tried to do in the book. Yeah. Well, you mentioned um, just a moment ago the the uh, 1876 centennial celebrations, and of course you know, there was the, the great centennial exhibition, and uh, and in the book actually these sort of you know marquee national expositions um, play a, a significant role in uh, I guess defining our sort of cultural self understanding and um, bringing artisans together uh, and and, and um, you know, exchanging ideas and proliferating ideas and techniques and so on. Um, and I wonder, you know, we haven't had in this country or or elsewhere, as far as I know, we haven't really had an equivalent to those uh, grand old expositions um, in a very long time now. Um, do, do you think the, the role for that kind of um, grand thinking uh, is is over? Has that period of history just elapsed uh, now? Hmm. Or what's going on with that? That's a really interesting question, Ben. Um, I guess the first thing that occurs to me is that the world's fairs really made sense in the period before mass media. And of course, they become bound up with the story of mass media. So for example, the first live television broadcast, unless I'm misremembering this, this is not in my book, but I think I'm right in saying that the first live television broadcast was actually on the fairgrounds of the 1939 World's Fair, mm. very much part of its World of Tomorrow message. Um, but you know, when you go back to 1876, you have to think of that as a mass event that did bring together millions of people um, in a way that nothing else really did. So you know, it, yeah, if I'm remembering right, I think 
you say in the book, it's to, uh, something like 20% of the population of the country goes to Philadelphia to, to view that show. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Although many of them it's are extraordinary. Many of them are from uh, outside America, but that many people, yeah. So the attendance is equivalent to like one fifth of the population at the time. So that just gives you a sense of what we're talking about here. Um, you know, one event. Um, and that continues to be true for the 1893 exposition in Chicago. Um, there's some other important ones in the early 20th century, but then of course 1939 is very important um, just before World War II. And these are very, very um, you know compelling, magical experiences for people that attend them, uh, but they increasingly become bound up with governmental and corporate interests as well. So it's it's a uh, you know it, it's such a complicated history in its own right, the history of the World's Fair. But you can easily see why, even once you get to 1964, which was the next New York World's Fair, why the structure starts to fall apart, because a lot of its purpose has been subsumed into other forms of mass media, of which television is, of course, an important example. So as places to go to find out what's happening in the world, you just don't need them anymore. And the, the more purely entertainment function that they served has obviously been taken over by theme parks. You know, Disney, right? Disneyland was, of course, very much a, a kind of straight um, adaptation of a World's Fair ground, uh, as you can see mm, from his eventual construction of Epcot, the you know, experimental prototype city of tomorrow. That's very much an imitation of a World's Fair ground logic. Um, so, so essentially, we still do have these um, models. It's just that they kind of travel under other names and in a more fragmentary way. You know, we have amusement parks and art fairs instead of singular world's fairs as we had in the right, crystal yeah. palace or the 1876 centennial. Well, I mean, the, so we're talking about this. I'm just thinking back to, um, you know, just before we went on air, so to speak, um, I, I was asking you about the research process, um, behind this book, which is just a very expansive, um, work. And, and as, as, as I said at the beginning, you know, it is a, a, an accessible book for a general audience, but it's also, um, it, it, you know, I haven't counted the footnotes, but, uh, it's quite a lot to, to, to work with there. <laughs> um, and, and just this, the, the scope of, of telling a history of craft, which in a way is telling a history of everything that happened in America, um, is a bit overwhelming. So I, I'm just curious. I'm maybe I'd I'd just like to get you to say a few more words about um, uh, you know how the how the project came about and um, and how you tackled such a a broad range of of topics and periods and people. Yeah, I mean, thanks, Ben. I'm I'm, I'm glad it comes across as having that kind of um, seriousness with regard to the historical record. Certainly, that's what I was trying to do, but you can never quite banish the feeling when you're writing something of this scope that you're just scratching the surface, you know? Um, yeah. But I, I, the reason it's called craft and American history is that I was trying to, if you like retell the narrative of the country through a craft lens or from a craft based point of view. So it does touch on a lot of the big themes of our history, you know, race and gender and politics and geographical expansion and, um, all the rest of it, you know, uh, ideas of modernity, the onset of the industrial revolution, that's sort of all in there, but the, always with the question, what did craftspeople make of this? What was it, what was it the effect on them? Um, I guess in terms of how I actually put it together though, 
in a funny way, it was more about finding stories of individuals. So it was almost the contrary in terms of the procedure Mm. that I went through because I just thought, you know, the reader was going to need, um, need to be accompanied through this story so that it didn't seem so abstract and depersonalized because of course, if there's one thing craft is it's personal, you know, it's about individualism and the individual touch. So that's why people like Elizabeth Keckley or Patrocinio Barella, or then maybe more predictable people like Paul Revere and Betsy Ross, they really serve as the, um, the armature, uh, for the book. So as you read through it, I think most people will feel like they're usually reading about a person and then they'll maybe take a step back from that person's experience into a broader context and then back into another story like that. So that's sort of how I tried to write it, um, partly to make it just relatable and readable, but also because I thought that was true to the subject. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I just speaking for myself, I, I found it very effective. I, you know, I prefer to think of history in terms of stories anyway, um, and I always think about objects in terms of stories, as anyone who listens to the podcast is already aware. So uh, it it works well for me as a reader anyway. You know, there's one other thing I might just say about that, which is that it also connects to a big theme in the book, which is just about the question of individualism, as opposed to, let's say, communitarianism or collective values. And it's very striking that, um, you know, I think most people would agree that America is defined by its individualism. You know, it's it's sort of can-do spirit, the idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, the myth of the frontier, a couple of things that we've already mentioned. And I guess one thing that strikes me about craft is that by its very nature, it's both intensely personal and individualistic because it involves the absorption of skills into one person's body over many years and then the use of those skills on a day-to-day basis so it's it's really really um, bound up with the individual person but on the other hand we often think of craft knowledge as being shared by a community being passed down through lineages of training and also as in a funny way kind of being a collective cultural property so you might think of that in regional terms, like let's say Appalachia, has a very, very strong sense of regional identity that's based on its craft traditions, also true of the Southwest and other parts of the country. And so yeah. I think another reason to think about craft now during this rather turbulent um, and divisive period that we're living in is that at a time when competing ideologies that are anchored either in collective or individualistic left-wing versus right-wing debates. I think what we need to find are ways of thinking about value that share some of the best sides of both of those um, kind of areas of human concern. And for me, craft is one of those key uh, linkages, key kind of common connective tissues for the culture. Well, I think that's an excellent note to end on. Um, thank you very much, Glenn. I, I hope you'll get right to work on your next book. So uh, we'll have an, another excuse to get you back on here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll see you in three years then, Ben. That sounds good. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, Glenn's book, Craft and American History, is out now. And if you are listening to this podcast right now, chances are it's a book that you would enjoy reading. And next month, we are going to take a foray into the wonderful world of uh, French painting. 
In the meantime, I would very much appreciate it if you take a moment to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. It really helps new listeners to find the show. Today's episode was edited and produced by Sammy Delotti. Our music is by Trap Rabbit. And I'm your host, Ben Miller. Thank you.